You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. It is one of those messages that answers one of the biggest confusions in the life of Christians in general. And you'll see what. I'm not going to disclose it now. I'm going to keep you in suspense. But um, so if I talk fast, it's not because I'm angry, uh, but it's because I need to get through a lot of material. And by the way, you're welcome. Last night, really late, I deleted about four pages of my notes from the sermon because I thought it'd be way too much. But you are welcome. I was thinking of you. (laughs) Although it's snowing outside, what else can you do today? You know what I mean? There are a few things that we need to keep in mind as we navigate through this awesome series that we started last week, as I said. I urge you to listen again, I'll say it again and again, to the first sermon in the series uh, from last week. If you weren't here, please, please, you got it. It's a crucial message in understanding the Sermon on the Mount better. And if you, um, if you haven't listened to Lucas' sermon, please do yourself a favor and do that. Uh, and here are the things that we need to keep in mind as we navigate through this series in kind of a, kind of a summary as well from last week. And Lucas was saying last Sunday that um, Matthew wants us to know three things about Jesus uh, as we study this series. And he wants us to know that Jesus is the true Israel, uh, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and that Jesus is the Lord. Now, uh, keep your eyes out for these three things because uh, they will help us understand the series better. But at the same time, they will just pop out you know, throughout our series uh, here and there. Also, there is another category of things that we need to keep in mind as we navigate this series. It's a category where Jesus wants us to know a few things as well, namely a few things about his disciples. And specifically, he says that his disciples change the world around them. Remember this from last week? Not only that, but his disciples cannot hide Um, their discipleship, and his disciples cause others to worship God. Again, keep your eyes open for these three things as well, these three truths about his disciples as we navigate through the series. At the same time, one last thing about last week's sermon that is crucial for us to to, uh, know. Uh, Lucas was mentioning that um, the premise of the whole Sermon on the Mount is found in verse 16, and again, we looked at it last week, And it goes something like this. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to whom? To your Father who is in heaven. And for the rest of this series, church, we are pretty much going to learn, I think, how to love Jesus better and better, how to honor him better and better. And then out of this love for him to pursue the good works that honor and glorify our Father in heaven. And this is crucial. Uh, I think it's the premise for the whole book. So keeping all of that in mind, I know it was a lot, and I'm going to throw a lot at you, uh, but I know that we're all awake this morning, and praise God for that. So let me just read the portion of Scripture that we're going to look at today, four verses. If you want to stand with me, I would really appreciate that as we read God's Word, and then we will pray and kind of get to work. So Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. And you'll know as soon as I start to read it, what, what, what I meant at the beginning, oh, something that I wanted to preach for my entire preaching and teaching life. Do not think that, and this is Jesus speaking, right? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord God, for the canon. I thank you, Lord God, for um, just the promises that we have in your word, that your word, Lord Jesus, gives us life. Lord, I ask that these four verses will impact our lives today in a, in a powerful way. And not only just today, Lord God, but for the weeks to come, the months to come, the years to come. 
Help us truly understand your word today, Father, and bear much fruit in all of our hearts. Do what you need to do, Holy Spirit, I ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. Have you ever asked yourself, what does the Old Testament have to do with me? That's a question that I always had since I became a Christian. Have you asked yourself, what's the deal with all these rules and regulations and prohibitions? Like what? <laughs> you, you, you must have had that, those questions, at least at a point in, in your walk with Christ, right? And by the way, there are 613 commands in the Old Testament. Did you know that? Some of them are obvious and evident. And we know that they are good for us. Like, don't murder. Oh, that's a really good one. (laughs) Literally keeps us alive. Uh, Or don't lie. These things are good for us, for our families, our communities. Um, But there are others that are just downright strange. Come on, you've had to, you know, just wonder. Some of these things are very weird in the Old Testament, right? Let me give you some examples. Let me give us some examples. No pork. Leviticus 11, 7, 8. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy, I think I had pork quite a bit over the holidays. What do I do? <laughs> there are people that say if there's a religion where you can't eat bacon, I'm out. Right? Let me give you another. No mixed materials. Yeah. Deuteronomy 22, 11. If you check the tag on your shirt or on your pants, don't do that with your pants now, but you're not allowed to have a con polyester blend. Did you realize that? No mixed materials. Pick cotton or polyester, whatever, but don't, no mix. That's what it says. I'm not making this up. Let me give you another one. No tattoos. Hold, hold on a minute. Don't. Leviticus 19.28. Some of you are like, do I need to call the laser tattoo removal people and church and schedule an appointment? Just, just hang in there for a moment. And here's one that I think it's totally bizarre to us. It's this idea of the sin offering. What do we do with all that? Leviticus 4, 27, 28. Essentially, as soon as you realize that you've messed up and sinned, you need to take a female goat that, 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 was, that is clean and spotless. Come, come on down to the altar and we'll kill it. There will be blood everywhere. We'll probably have to change the carpet every week. Our kids would lose their mind. They, they, there would be screaming for sure. But you would essentially confess your sins and we would make an atonement for you. Pretty, pretty interesting. So let me ask, how are you doing with those? And I've only touched on on a handful, four out of 613 commandments. Have you ever been puzzled by that? Why don't we follow those things anymore? Or, Or should we? Or are we? I mean, God gave the law, so what's the explanation then? Because it's really confusing, it's difficult, and it's really hard to figure out. But today, we are going to answer that exact question, what does the Old Testament have to do with me. If you love taking notes, you're going to love the sermon today. It might feel a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon, uh, but bear with me, please. Please bear with me. And I promise you, I promise you, this will help us follow Jesus better. Or, Or should I say this will help us pursue loving Jesus more and more. And out of this love for him, pursue the good works that God has in store for us so that God's name is glorified, not ours, just like verse 16 says. This is actually a central teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, these four verses. And in fact, the next six paragraphs in Matthew 5 that Jesus is going to teach all come back to the principles he sets forth here in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. So for the next five weeks for us of teaching, they are all going to tie in to today. So today is very, very, very important. So let's get to work and look at verses 17 and 18 again. We'll split them up like that. 17 and 18, and then 19 and 20. Let me just read these two verses again. It doesn't hurt. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come, uh, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, that sorts it out, doesn't it? 
Does this passage that we just read, does it make it easier? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Not really. It makes it harder, I think. Jesus is teaching on the Old Testament. Testament meaning, by the way, covenant. That's what it means. Testament means covenant. So Jesus' teaching on the Old Covenant actually complicates this more for us. It would be much easier if Jesus just said, don't worry. I, I came to abolish the law so you guys don't have to worry about all that weird stuff. About all the pork and all the mixed, all the tattoos and all that stuff. No, no, don't worry about it. But that's not what he says, is it? He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's like, whoa, okay. Now, I'll just come out and say it. The key to understanding this text is those two words, abolish and fulfill. First, what did Jesus come not to do? He did not come to abolish the law. Now, abolish means out with the old in with the new. Why do I phrase it like this? Well, I phrase it like this because for many Christians, this is what they think happened with Jesus. I understand we're under a new covenant with Christ. I get that. I read my New Testament, but that doesn't mean the old covenant has been destroyed. So, katalua, I'm probably butchering that, is the Greek word for abolish, katalua. And here are some definitions for this word, just so we can get a better grasp of what this means. It means dissolve. It means destroy. It means demolish, subvert, uh, overthrow. Notice, there are negative connotations with every single one of these words. Now, looking at this word, you get this idea that the old covenant was worthless, It was an error. It was wrong anyways. So Jesus came to destroy all of that because he was flawed, right? No. (laughs) He came to do away with all the pork stuff, like I said, and all the mixed materials. That's definitely not what happened, though. That's, That's not what happened. Let me ask you a question. Who gave the law in the first place? God did. Do you know what Psalm 19 says? The law of God is perfect in every way. God created the perfect law. He wouldn't just abolish it. There is always a beautiful continuity to God's perfect and divine plan when, with what he creates. He doesn't just create something and then just throw it out. Nah, plan B, nah, it's not really working out. Plan C, no, no. And so it's really important for us to understand that we as Christians, 2,000 years removed from from the Sermon on the Mount, we can very easily creep into this and say, you better believe that Jesus came to abolish the law. Of course he did, (laughs) right? But Jesus in his own words says here, I did not come to abolish the law. But what did he come to do? He came to fulfill. Fulfill means this. The new builds upon the old. The new builds upon the old. Yes, we are in a new covenant in Christ. It's a little complicated, I get it, (laughs) and difficult to navigate through this. But essentially, the new covenant has a context. And the context for the new covenant is the old covenant. It's the law and the prophets. And what Christ has given us in this new covenant, and it's just beautiful, is a way that we can be in relationship with God. I mean, we read through Ephesians, all the things that we have in Christ, right? A way, a way to be back in the presence of God. That's what this new covenant has given us. To be in communion with God. To, we have this beautiful, beautiful gift of forgiveness of sins. And now we're, we have a new identity, new family, new desires, new goals, a living hope for a new eternity. But there's a context for that. And it builds upon hundreds of years of God already relating to his people. His chosen people through his redemption in history. So it's not out with the old and in with the new. It's not a continuation per se either. But it's a new chapter of the story that builds upon the old. Now the original Greek word, we're going to do a lot of Greek today. The original Greek word is the word plerao, and plerao literally means to fill up, to fill up. Have you ever been standing 
in a restaurant and you're talking to someone, you're at the drink dispenser and you're talking, you're not really paying attention. All of a sudden you're, you feel your hand is soaking wet and like, whoa, 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 let me stop this. That's a picture of pleirao. That's literally what it means to be completely full, overflowing. But in another sense, it means to complete, to realize, to accomplish, much more positive, isn't it? If abolish has to do with destroy, listen to this. If abolish has to do with destroy, to to undermine, pleirao has to do with bringing about, bringing about its original intended purpose to fruition. Now, here's one way, and we have to talk about this. Here's one way Jesus came to fulfill the law. We need to understand this. There's actually two things, but the first thing is, did you realize that Jesus is the new Moses? In fact, Matthew, more than any other gospel authors, is presenting Jesus as a new Moses. Where did did Moses go to receive the law from God? Well, he went on, on a mountain, more specifically Mount Sinai. Also, Jesus is here in Matthew 5 on a mountain. Moses ascends the mountain to receive the law from God, to to share the covenant with the people. Matthew is intentionally presenting Jesus as the new Moses who ascends the mountain, not to receive the law from God, but to authoritatively speak the new covenant himself. He's the new and greater Moses. And we see here uh, what what Lucas was saying last week, that he is actually God. (laughs) He is God. He'll just speak it with authority, right? But, but he's the new and greater Moses. In fact, if you were to ask Moses, if Jesus is the new Moses, Moses would say yes and amen based on Deuteronomy 18.15. And listen to what Moses has to say. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. He was pointing to a better Moses. And that's Jesus Christ. So Moses fully expects prophetically in Deuteronomy 18, where it says God's words will be in the mouth of this new Moses. He has the authority to speak a new covenant to his people. So Jesus is the new Moses. And the second thing that we need to understand is that the law and the prophets, right? We just read it, the law and the prophets, which is another way of saying, by the way, the Old Testament, right? The law and the prophets, it all points to Jesus anyways. The law points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It points toward Jesus. As the Bible project says, the Bible is one unified story, which all points to Jesus. Now, Jesus fully understood this about himself and his identity as the son of God. He did. In fact, after Jesus died on a cross, He rose again, and there's this really curious interaction. He appears to Mary first, right, after his resurrection, then the women at the tomb, and he appears to his disciples. And he also appears to these two seemingly random guys on the road to Emmaus. You may have heard the story, the passage. Emmaus is this random, random small village, not really noteworthy. But in Luke 24, 27, this is how Jesus explains the gospel on Easter Sunday to these two guys. This is Jesus preaching the gospel. And it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Do you hear that? (laughs) He interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. How cool is that? That's so cool. So how does Jesus, after the resurrection, preach the gospel to these two guys on the road to Emmaus? He uses the law and the prophets to preach the gospel. It's the Old Testament. He explains and he says, it's all about me. It's all pointing towards me. And so when we interpret the old covenant through the lens of Christ, through the lens of the resurrection, through the lens of of the gospel, it's like that missing piece that totally unlocks the original true meaning that the law and the prophets had all along. There's beauty when we look at the Old Testament through the lens of the gospel. Please. Please, church, don't say, let's never say that the Old Testament is irrelevant or that it's not that important. If we say that, we may have a very skewed understanding of who Jesus Christ is. 
Uh, J.C. Ryle says it like this, and I quote, the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. Remember, springtime and just the flower is just going to come to life just a little bit. So the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flavor. Isn't that a beautiful illustration? Church, there's such beauty when we read and understand the Old Testament, including the 613 commands, including all the weird, confusing prohibitions. And it's beautiful only when we look at it through the lens of the gospel. So now let's ask the question that you probably have been waiting for. How does the Old Testament apply to my life, though? I mean, what we just talked about, that's great. That's, that's cute. That's awesome movie. But what about that tattoo thing? You know, what about the pork? I love pork. What about, you know? In answering this big question, because we're going to answer, we're not going to have time to go through all that, uh, but we have to answer the big category question, right? So in answering this big question, this is what we're going to do in the next few minutes. I'm going to give us three filters, three filters that we should always look at the Old Testament through. And by the way, these filters are originally something that D.A. Carson talks about, so it's not my D.A. Carson. So there are three main approaches or filters that we need to apply at any given point when we look at the Old Testament, when we look at the 613 laws uh, that we find in the Old Covenant. And the first one is, we're not going to waste any time, the first one is, some of the Old Covenant has been fulfilled in that Jesus has completed it. Very, very crucial in understanding uh, the Old Testament. So it's not that it has been abolished, again, It hasn't been abolished. Jesus is clear about that, but it has been completed. It has been a a portion of it, a big portion of it has been completed, meaning it's no longer binding to us, but it's still very instructional. So it's no longer binding to us under the new covenant in Christ. But the reason why we don't throw it out is because it's very, very instructional. Did you know that the word Torah, which uh, refers to the first five books of the Bible, uh, the book of the law. Did you know that Torah means law? That's what it means. But did you know that what the primary meaning of the word law is actually, it actually refers to instruction. That's what it is, instruction. So God's law, whether it is still binding in the new covenant or not, it is still instructional to us. One of the best examples that we can give is the sin offering from that we see again in the book of Hebrews, but specifically, let's pick one verse. It's chapter 10, verse 12. Let me just read it to us. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And that's essentially why if you sin and if you become aware of your sin and you're, you feel guilty and, and, and you don't have to bring a goat to church anymore, <laughs> Please don't kill a goat and don't bring it to church. We don't have to do that anymore because all of these goats that were sacrificed in the Old Testament, they were pointing forward to teach us, to instruct us exactly what Paul says in the book of Romans, that the wages of sin is death. You sin, you die. And it was supposed to teach us exactly just that, all that blood and you better believe that every time you became aware of your sin, and, and if you had to kill a goat every time that you knew sin equals death. You knew it from all the blood and all the killing of the goats. You knew it from living in the old covenant because of this deep instructional piece that sin equals death. You knew it and it was serious. But the reason we don't have to do that anymore is because all the animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament were pointing forward to Christ. And we just read it, to the once and for all singular sacrifice of the Son of God, Jesus dying for our sins, dying for the sins of the world on the cross. And that is the only sacrifice that truly forgives us of our sins, trespasses, shortcomings, etc. So when you read the first chapters of Leviticus, because you're going to get a lot of this, the sin offering and all that. A book of the Bible that I believe a lot of Christians do not read, have never read, which is kind of sad. You don't have to offer those sacrifices anymore because it's already been done for us in Christ on the cross. But can we still learn from Leviticus 1 to 5? Oh, yes. We should actually teach 
Lucas, a series, Raz, a series on the gospel according to Leviticus. People actually do this, which is amazing because you better believe it's instructional. I mean, it actually helps us in understanding about grace and sin and the seriousness of sin. It would be very fitting for North America and the sobriety and soberness that we should have in our hearts when we approach God and His holiness. There's incredible instruction in these books, even if they have been completed in Christ, even if those laws are no longer binding to us. Furthermore, many of these 613 laws that we have in the Old Testament, many have been classified as civil laws. Have you heard that before? Civil laws. This is very important to understand. And we don't actually live in the nation of Israel. We don't live in the nation of Israel back in biblical times either, which was this interesting mixture. It was a faith tradition. It was a religion, but at the same time, a society that was ruled by a government that was set by God. And I hate to break it to, to us. The United States of America is not the chosen nation of God. God didn't write the constitution, Right. And so it's different when we live in a society where the religion and the ruling government is both established by God. Does that make any sense? Now, having said that, there are so many laws in the Old Testament that are for such a context. Therefore, they are not binding to us because we're called in our context to obey our governing authorities. Well, that's if they're within God's will, of course. And then there are other laws that are ceremonial in nature. Now, it's very difficult, I get it, because when you read through Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, when you read through these kinds of books and passages, there isn't a little parenthesis saying, hey, buddy, this is a ceremonial law. Keep that in mind. It's not for you anymore in the 20th, 21st century. No, we don't have that, right? So sometimes it's a little difficult to classify Old Testament laws. And we can just acknowledge that some of these laws have been completed in Christ. That's what I'm trying to say. So that was filter number one. A lot of these laws were completed in Christ. Now, the second filter is that some of, some of these laws have been reaffirmed. So not only completed, but now a second filter reaffirmed. That just means that Jesus repeated it. It's basically Jesus telling us, yes and amen, Keep following it. And usually when he does that, and we'll see this in the Sermon on the Mount quite often, actually for the remainder of chapter five, it was written this. I'm going to make it more strict for you guys now. Boom. He elevates, you know, the standard. That's what he does, right? So this is the reaffirmed ones. The two best examples that I can think of when it comes to this, you know, Jesus reaffirmed, right? Is when Jesus is asked, Rabbi, what's the most important commandment? Remember that? You may be familiar with this example. And this is how Jesus answers. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus is actually quoting an Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy 6, actually. Jesus does not say, hmm, good, good question, buddy. Uh, because I'm God, I'll just make a new one on the spot. Just because I can do it. You know what I mean? No, he doesn't do that. If he came to abolish the law, he probably would have done something like that. But what he does instead is reaffirming what Deuteronomy says. And the second example is, um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's the same kind of a thing. There are many other examples. And we have this in Leviticus 19, 18, if you want to look that up. Which, by the way, it's the, same, funny, it's the same chapter that says you should not have tattoos. So if that's not confusing, I don't know what is confusing. <laughs> Anyways. But the idea here is that you can't just say, oh, these chapters are binding and these ones are not. No, it doesn't work like that. It just doesn't work like that. We have to, just hear me out. We have to diligently and humbly and prayerfully walk through all these passages and apply these filters that we're talking about today. And for some, it's a little easier because Jesus just reaffirms them. And he says straight up, just do it. You heard what it was said, just do it. And the third filter is that Jesus 
reinterpreted certain Old Covenant laws, Old Testament laws. So not only completed, reaffirmed, but reinterpreted, right? And what that means is the original intention of those laws have been revealed in Christ. This is a beautiful one too. And one of the most evident examples of this that I can think of, or one that came to mind anyways, is Jesus teaching on the Sabbath. This is a big one, right? Now, I don't believe that Jesus ever broke the law, capital L, So when people accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, you may remember some passages in the Bible and the Gospels. The truth is that Jesus broke people's traditions, not the law, capital L. He broke the laws upon the laws because they made a few hundred more, right? On top of what God made. So Jesus is like, I'm going to bend down and pick up some grain and eat it. And the religious leaders were like, hey, you're doing too much work. What's, What's going on? That is work. That's not Sabbath. What's going on here? Jesus is like, really? I, I never said that. We, we never gave that command. Well, I don't know how it got lost in translation here. And Jesus in Mark 2, 27, 28, he reinterprets what I would say was the intended meaning of the Sabbath keeping all along. Let me just read it. Mark 2, 27, 28. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for men. Check this out. The Sabbath was made for men, not men for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So so there are two principles here that Jesus is trying to convey about the Sabbath. And the first one is that Sabbath is supposed to be a gift to you guys. Come on, it's a gift. And and it's not a gift for you guys because you're just, just so legalistic about keeping the Sabbath that now you're really stressing out about it. So it's not a gift anymore. You're not, you're all stressed out. You're not resting. It's crazy. Talk about slavery in Egypt. You're living in slavery even on the Sabbath. You're, you're resting. How many steps do I, can I still take? Oh, 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 no, I can't take any more steps. And all those extra rules. Are you serious? So here's how Jesus reinterpreted the Sabbath. Sabbath is made for men and not men for the Sabbath. Meaning, hey, it's a gift for you guys. It's made for you. Rest. Just rest. This is principle number one. The second principle is the son of man is Lord over the Sabbath, he says. And what he's saying is true Sabbath rest is found only in me. So yeah, take a rest. But it's only found in me, you guys. If you watch movies and Netflix all day long, that's not rest. Rest in me. That's Sabbath. Do you remember the passage? And I'm just remembering Matthew 11. What does Jesus tell us to do when we're weary and heavy laden? Take a Sabbath, actually. He actually says, come to, come to me, come to him. True lasting Sabbath for us is found only in Jesus Christ. So when you take a day of rest, and if you're not resting in Jesus, that's no rest day at all, no matter how much you rest. May God help us to really know how to rest. This is, this is hitting home. So here's the main point for us. We, we kind of went through these three filters, right? Here's kind of the main point. Don't skip the Old Testament. Let's not skip the Old Testament. Don't skip it. Read it. Read the Old Testament. Read it and understand that we have a new covenant in Christ. Yes. And that the new covenant has a context. And that context is the old covenant. And we have to respect it. We have to honor it. Learn from it. And it's instructive in nature. Think about this for a second. The often quoted passage from 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. Do you know the passage? All scriptures breathe out by God. And remember that passage? Okay. Now think about this reality. The New Testament canon has not been completed yet when Paul writes this to Timothy. Did you know that? So what is he referring to when he says all scripture? Yeah. The law and the prophets. Now, let's read these two verses through that lens that Paul meant, hey, the law and the prophets. All scripture, all the law and the prophets is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped in every good work. Church, if we skip the Old Testament, we're missing out on that instruction that this talks about. We're missing out on that correction. We're missing out on the training and righteousness that God has to offer. So what's the lesson here? Don't skip the Old Testament. Read the whole Bible, kind of an application point if I may. Read the whole Bible with a highlighter. 
What, what, what do we do with a highlighter? We highlight stuff, right? When you highlight something, what you're saying is, oh, that's good. Oh, that's important. When you highlight something, there's humility, I believe, there. Like I, like, I need to learn from that. I need to set myself under the authority of this. I want to remember this again. There's humility. I don't know if you remember high school or college, and I remember in seminary, when you would get back a paper, like a, an assignment, maybe Lucas knows. Do you use red pen when you correct assignments, or not necessarily? No, okay, never mind. <laughs> it was back in the day. So my professors used to use like red pens, and it was, it was not a good sign. It was dripping with horror. <laughs> just lots of notes, a lot of like crossed out, like just crossing out and, and saying that's heresy because I went to seminary. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 you can't say stuff like that. You know what I mean? But what do I mean by that? That's how we read scriptures sometimes with a red pen. And we just cross out stuff. Nah, I don't like that. Really? And we're like more critiques of Jesus' teachings than anything else. But the idea is, let's read the whole Bible with a highlighter, having the humble posture of, Lord, what are you saying to me from this passage? May God help us with that. Let's continue with verses 19 and 20. I'll read them again for us. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, what Jesus is doing here, he's getting into the practical matters. Like verse 17 and 18, uh, the two verses that we just looked at, that's the principle, right? He's talking about the principle. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's the principle. Here in verses 19 and 20, he's getting to the practical matters, which is obedience, obedience. And what he's basically saying is, are you guys relaxing these commands that I, that I gave you? Are you, you kind of like, eh, I don't know about this one. This one works, this one doesn't. Are you relaxing? That's pretty much what he's saying. Are you relaxing these commands? And what Jesus is doing here in two verses, in these two verses, he's giving two equal opposite errors. He's given us two examples of two extremes that a lot of people fall for, especially in our day and age. And so on one end of the spectrum, we have the first error, and it's called, here we go, antinomianism or antinomianism. Have you heard that before? Might be a new vocabulary word for us today. It's fun to say five times really quick. Antinomianism is actually very simple to understand. Made up of two words, two Greek words, anti, which is against, and nomos, which is law. So against the law. Very easy to understand. And so someone who was doing exactly what Jesus is saying not to do, right? In Jesus' own words, man, he is relaxing his commands, right? That's what he's saying. And essentially, antinomianism says that grace is opposed to rules. That's what it basically says. It's kind of like hyper grace, you know? It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace gospel. It's this idea that God has only grace for me. Only grace, and, and I don't need to follow him anymore. I can live the way I want to. I don't need to, I guess I don't have to live differently than the world. I guess his laws, his commands don't really apply to me. No, he's got only grace, and we're happy, and no. There are a lot of Christians, whether they know the term antinomianism or not, that they are antinomianists, right? At the end of uh, the first century, there's this famous Gnostic teacher who crept his way into the church. His name was Marcion. This guy was a first century heretic. You may have heard of him. He was one of the earliest guys who assembled a canon of scripture. A canon meaning a compilation of the books of the Bible, right? He was kind of one of the first guys. And check this out. He included most of Paul's teachings, some of the gospels, just some. Interestingly enough, talking about a red pen, he crossed out Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Huh. He crossed out the entire Old Testament. <laughs> and in his heresy, he actually had two gods, like two, you know, the Old Testament God who was mean and had all these, all these prohibitions and, and then the New Testament God who's a God of love and grace and that was the true God for him. Let's be honest. 
The reality is that many Christians are like, well, I don't believe in Marcionism or antinomianism, but we live like it, right? Paul in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, is addressing this very thing, not heresy necessarily, but this very same hard posture in life when he says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Then he gives the answer, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? No way. That's not the gospel. R.C. Sproul calls Marcionism or antinomianism easy believism. Easy believism. We find a lot of that today. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it. It stops there. There's absolutely no obedience. There's absolutely no following. Now, I totally understand, church. I totally understand. We cannot save ourselves. And we'll talk about that in the second here, here in a second. But it doesn't mean that the new covenant doesn't have commands and laws. Let me remind us that Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself and pick up your cross on a daily basis. You have to actually follow. You have to actually live differently. It's not just about professing with your lips, Jesus is Lord. It's actually living Jesus is Lord and allowing the Holy Spirit to change us inside out. We have to follow Jesus with all that we have and are. The second error that Jesus is addressing here, which is um, on the other side of the spectrum, is legalism. It says, I think, maybe a little bit easier to understand. And legalism is salvation by rule keeping. Salvation by rule keeping. This may sound uh, more familiar, like I said. Let me ask you this. Have you heard the saying, the law makes a great teacher, but a horrible, horrible savior? It is so true. It is so true. The law makes a great teacher, but a horrible savior. Horrible, and I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. In the early church, there was a, a group called the Judaizers, and they were trying to make people keep both covenants completely. If you want to be a Christian man, you got to become a Jew first. We'll, we'll, we'll get you in, and then, and then, and only then, you can become a Christian, right? And even Apostle Peter was caught doing a little bit of this because uh, Apostle Paul had to confront him, right? We have a passage that kind of tells us that. But in Galatians two sixteen, we get this beautiful principle that Paul articulates. And he says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, the New Testament is just full of, of expressions like this. So the law makes a great teacher, an absolutely amazing teacher, but a horrible, horrible savior. And I will actually argue that all along people were saved by God's grace through faith. It was by faith that Abraham was justified and not out of the keeping of the rules. And yet in Jesus' own day, there were these Pharisees and scribes that he mentions here in our verses. Uh, uh, and you have to understand that Jesus doesn't bring them up saying, oh, these guys are so corrupt. They're so evil. Not in this instance anyways. No, he brings them up in this instance because they were the golden standard. These guys fasted all the time. They prayed all the time. They gave more money than probably all of us can give, right? They knew all the prayers and they knew scriptures back and forth. They had it all memorized and they were way more righteous than you and I. On their own merit, I mean, on their own worth, they did the works of righteousness, so what does Jesus say about them and about their legalism? He says, you got to be better than them if you want to make it in my kingdom. Like, what? That's impossible. Yeah. Even if they are 99% righteous, even if they are 1% off, short of the standard, you need to do better than them if you want to make it in my kingdom. And by the way, at the end of our chapter here in Mark 5, Jesus actually tells us what the standard is. You know what it is? Be perfect as my father is perfect. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no. But here's the point. Even the self-righteousness self of the Pharisees, it actually didn't lead them to what God wanted, which is a transformed heart. They became judgmental jerks. God, good job with the fasting, guys. Good job with the praying and with your giving, except for the fact that you are turning people away from coming to me. That's where legalism ends. That's where legalism gets you. It's this, it's this beautiful idea that when we understand this verse 20, 
Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will never make it. And what, what Jesus is saying, that's the point. You can't save yourself. Only I can. Church, we need the law to instruct us and to show us the need for a savior, but not to be our savior itself. I was thinking of this uh, earlier this morning. I probably heard it somewhere. The law is kind of like looking in a mirror, like, ooh, my hair is all over the place and I got spinach in between my teeth. Like, so how do you fix the spinach? You're not going to take the mirror and just kind of shove it in your mouth to take that piece of spinach. No, the law cannot do that. You'll hurt your mouth. You'll be bleeding all over the place. Someone else needs to take that spinach out of your mouth. That's Christ. So the law cannot do that. It can just show you how you are and instruct you and teach you. Church, we're not supposed to throw out a single letter from the law, but be very careful. The law will never save us. It would if you were perfect, but that's never the case. There's only one who completely fulfilled the law and the prophets. Only one. There's one, only one who never sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And he is the one who speaks these words in Matthew 5. It's Jesus Christ, the son of God, the author of the best sermon ever. If you want to hear a really cool thing, man, this just is so cool to think of it like this. You know what Jesus did with the righteousness, his righteousness, the righteousness that, that he had? He was the only one that was righteous, by the way. He died a sinner's death on the cross for you and me. That's what he did with that righteousness. He used his righteousness not to condemn the world, as John 3 says, but that the world might be saved through him. It's this monumental point in the history of humanity where Jesus is dying for the sins of the world, not, not, not for his sins. He was perfect. Where he actually shares his righteousness with us. He actually clothes us. He wraps us with his righteousness so that we might be saved through him. How beautiful is that? So I would just say to you, stop trying to work your way to God. Just stop it. It's not going to happen no matter how you live your life, but instead submit to Jesus's lordship in your life. Submit, bow down at the foot of the cross, accept the grace, the forgiveness that Jesus offers. It's already paid in full anyways. What I just want to tell you, it's not as simple as saying the right words. Because we can pray right now, like, oh Lord, you know, I'm giving my life to you. If someone hasn't done that here, I don't think that's the case, but. It's not as simple as saying the right words. It's not a magic formula, but it starts there. It starts with a simple confession. It starts with a simple hard posture of believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. But then you have to full well know that you're going to follow Jesus with everything in your life. This gospel is not preached because people are, people usually go for uh, an accessory sort of a gospel in Christ. Like, ah, as we wrap up, I want to ask this question. So if we're not saved by following the law, the rules, why in the world are we following them? Why? What's the point? What's the point in keeping God's commands? What's the point of reading and studying the difficult passages in the Old Testament? What, what's the point? And the reason is for sure not these two extremes that we looked at. Antinomianism or legalism. No, 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 no. It's a simple word. Love. It's love. Do you realize that loving God requires obedience? Do you realize that loving God requires obedience? And we don't obey God out of legalism. We do it out of love. We obey God out of an overflowing of, of, of what God did and does for us. In the, in the apostle John's words, we love because he first loved us. Or in Jesus' own words, John 14, 15, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. But that's not what we tend to think about when speaking about love, right? We tend to think of like, okay, you love me, that means that you love me. <laughs> I don't know, if you love me, you will feel loving towards me. You will sing many worship songs to me. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. If you obey me, you will follow the law. 
So why do we follow Jesus with everything that we are? Well, because he first loved us. And it's out of love and it's through love. And what's beautiful about the law, and not just, and not just the Old Testament law, but the law of Christ, his commands, his teachings, is that obedience is not guesswork. Obedience is not guesswork. Let me explain myself. Do you realize that it's actually an incredibly loving thing for God to tell his people, this is what I expect of you. Don't just guess it. (laughs) This is what I expect of you because I love you. Because otherwise people would do some weird stuff in God's name to try to please him, wouldn't they? They do anyways with the Bible in front of them. Listen, one of the most loving things that a child can do is honor their parents, is love their parents, is obey their parents. Our oldest, Taya, believe it or not, she tells me on a daily basis, Tata, I love you so much. Does she mean it? Nah. Not really. I tell her, pick up your toys, wash your hands. Yeah, right. I got to say that a hundred times. But if a child just says that and doesn't back it up with obedience, it doesn't really mean much. I still love hearing it though. Because <laughs> I'm a sinner. <laughs> if your child tells you they love you, but they never listen to a word they're saying, you, you would definitely question their love, right? But, but for me as a parent, one of the most loving things I can do is to tell her what I expect of her and not to make her guess. Like, Taya, baby, you got to pick up your toys. You got to clean up your room. You got to wash your hands. That's good for you. It's not, hey, if you love me, you'll just figure it out somehow. And then they try to do something. Nope, that's not what it is. Try again. That's insane. And so the law is God telling us what he expects of us in our lives, you know, What does Christian sexuality look like? Well, let me tell you guys, so you're not lost, you know what I mean, like the rest of the world. And by the way, we're going to dive into that in this series, which is exciting. What does it look like to actually love your neighbor, love your enemy even? What do those things look like? And God tells us, believe it or not, in the law. Jesus is not trying to make us guess. In fact, for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, This is a masterclass in the way of Jesus. Said it in a different way. It's a one-on-one on on how to do good works out of love for Jesus that honor the Father in heaven, just like verse 16 calls for us to do. So church, we're not saved by our own righteousness. We are not saved by our own righteousness, but God expects us to pursue living righteous lives. He expects us to follow his commands. And one way we can say this in a way that we can probably take it home a little bit easier. We love God by keeping the law and his law is love. Love the Lord God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's this beautiful cycle that we have cut out for us. And when we love God, we're going to follow his laws and his law can be summarized by loving him with everything and loving the people that he created. Would you stand with me, please? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.